All right, all right, all right. We are back. It is the Unified CXM Experience. And as always, I'm your host, Grad Khan, CXO or Chief Experience Officer at Sprinkler. Very, very cool time to be at Sprinkler, having a blast. You know, in my entering my fourth year, it's a pretty amazing journey that I've been on over the last near half decade with Sprinkler. And I was one of Sprinkler's first customers, maybe the first big customer. And so in one way or the other, I've been working with Sprinkler for more than 10 years now. So it's just been an amazing, amazing ride. You know, when I first met the Sprinkler team, it was, um, I guess it was, you know, love at first sight sounds a bit corny, but I have experienced love at first sight now in real life. I'm going to marry that one woman. Um, so I know it's true. I know love at first sight is really true. And when I met the Sprinkler team, I knew right away they were on the right track because they were talking about a unified CXM platform all the way back in 2011. And I knew they had the right idea because already point solutions had become a huge problem inside Microsoft. And it was really difficult to manage or get any kind of view of the customer. So I've been on the unified train for a long time and I continue to ride the rails. So I'm decided to do a set of episodes that are just very focused stories. And they, they come a little bit from uh, some of the speeches I do, some of the stories I tell. Um, they're sometimes tightly related to Unified CXM, sometimes loosely related. Today's is going to be loosely related. But they're still, I think, fun stories and fun ways of thinking about um, life as we know it and the marketing planet. So I thought I'd kind of like roll this one out and sort of see what happens. So uh, today I want to talk about new channels and the way that people react to new channels and sometimes the way to know if a new channel is going to be a big deal or not. And, and, and channels may not be quite the right word. It could be mediums, uh, could be methods of communication. I'll, I'll describe what I mean in a second. Uh, so just, just stay with me as I go through this. But I'll, I'll use a little bit of my uh, father's journey and a little bit of my journey uh, over the last, I guess that'll probably comprise about five decades and a little, maybe a little future casting. And I'll do, maybe I'll actually, I'll actually channel some Claude Hopkins. So we're going to go back a century here. We're going to go, we're going to pull this all the way back to Claude Hopkins, the 1920s, and we're going to embrace the sort of the full spectrum of advertising history. So Claude Hopkins wrote a book called My Life in Advertising and a book called Scientific Advertising. And if I've got it correct, I believe he wrote Scientific Advertising first. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's the first book ever written on advertising and essentially espoused the principles of using scientific technique and hypothesis to create better outcomes in marketing, which, you know, that's how I talk today and talk to my marketing team as the being marketing scientists. So it's a, it's a great way to think. And I was highly influenced by this book. And then he wrote a follow-up, which was essentially his um, biography called My Life in Advertising and some really juicy stuff in there. It's really kind of a continuation of scientific advertising, but a little bit of a different title. It's all um, open now. It's all out of copyright. So you can get both those books for free on Amazon or any Kindle reader, et cetera. So I'd encourage you to, if you've never read them, you should read them. They're classics of their kind. You have to um, take a way back pill before you start reading them. 
just throw a, a way back pill in your mouth and and just just try to get past some of the terminology and a few things like that just just you have to understand it was written 100 years ago so it'll sound a little bit dated but the principles are unchanged so that's why it's a worthwhile book to read and it's written by someone who wrote a lot of ads and saw a lot of responses so he he knew what he was talking about anyway so um in that book on scientific advertising early on claude hopkins talks about the the clutter and the noise and the the tension grabbing um you know kind of craziness of advertising and i can guarantee that most people listening to this don't think of 1920s as being a clamor-filled, insane advertising environment. And, and compared to today, it wasn't. <laughs> compared to today, it was, it was pastoral. <laughs> but everything's relative. And in the 1920s, they had you know, the evolution of some new mass communication techniques. They had the radio was getting out there. Um, movies hadn't really arrived yet, but they um, definitely had magazines. They definitely had newspapers. And the scourge of the time, billboards. Yeah, billboards were a huge problem. In fact, Eleanor Roosevelt made it her one of her life goals uh, was to try to control the spread of what they called visual pollution. And to try to rein in billboards, which were like littering the land as the highways started to be built and cars started to become popular, billboards were like everywhere. And so it was this insane advertising cacophony that people complained about. And so it's, it is kind of funny. So, you know, today, you know, people also complain about that. In fact, there are many things that people complain about in, in every age, uh, and they complain about it uniquely like it's the first time it's ever happened to them um, but it's you know it's true of of all ages but you know sometimes there's a slightly different outcomes one of my this is a bit of an aside but i've got to talk about one of my favorites is um is pollution pollution has been around and been an issue with humans for a very long time you know put five humans in a camp and next thing you know you've got garbage right so um imagine cities full right so there's a fantastic article written on the growth of the volume of horse manure in the city of London. And they did a straight line projection, and they said by 1945, we'll be generating so much horse manure based on you know, current trends that we'll be like up to our knees in it. Like we won't, we won't have places to put it anymore, and it'll overwhelm the city. Of course, that didn't happen because you know, cars were invented, and we invented a different and new kind of pollution, which is now going away, and there's a a new kind of thing coming after that. But, you know, it's, it's always, I always find it funny that humans love to do straight line projections and, and predict uh, the end of everything, uh, whether that's under piles of horse manure, um, piles of coal, uh, piles of, you know, wood. You know, burning wood was a huge pollution problem for a long time until we, you know, kind of cut all the trees down in Europe. And, um, and then uh, now gasoline, and then, you know, I'm sure electricity will have, Electric cars will have their own pollution problem. Uh, I think it's lithium batteries, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, so I, so and, and Claude in this in this book, or maybe I should say Mr. Hopkins. Mr. Hopkins in this book talks a lot about the evolution of new forms of media, 
and they were, we were moving off an age where you know people did speeches from the backs of trains and you know most commerce was done face to face in general stores and it was very intimate and very one to one classic direct marketing era and then these new mass tools were coming out and little did Claude know that um you know TV was you know about 30 years away uh uh, movie theaters were about mm, five to six years away. Broad scale radio was, you know, maybe five to ten years away, uh, and and then you know the internet was, you know, probably about. I guess at that point, the internet was probably interestingly in 1920, the invention of the internet was only 44 years away, which is interesting. Um, and uh, sort of broad scale, it was only 74 years away. So, um, but nonetheless, lots of things coming up, and. What I always find interesting is how when something new comes along, people tend to poo-poo it. And so I'm, I'm just, I wasn't there, um, but I can just imagine when radio came out, people were like, radio, like just a fad, like, you know, this is silly. It's ridiculous. You can't see anybody. There's no personality. You're not in front of this, like versus theater, like it's not human, et cetera. And of course, radio became very successful. And I know mean, when TV came out, it was brutally criticized and there's all sorts of negativity about it. And it was derisively called the boob tube. And, you know, it was sort of seen as a wasteland and, you know, kids were only allowed to watch a certain amount. And you, it was all sorts of rumors that it was going to ruin your eyes. And it was like TV was despised by many people when it came along and we've kind of moved on. And I, I talked to my dad about this and, and he was this Really funny story, but when he was at Young and Rubicam in the 1960s, um, he he was working in the in the TV group, and um, and there was like the advertising team at YNR, and advertising was uh, uh, magazines and newspapers and uh, billboards and radio that was sort of seen as advertising, and then there was this kind of TV thing they didn't really know what to do with. Um, Bill Bernbach had been sort of you know, pushing in some pretty interesting ways, the creative revolution. But a lot of the Bill Birnbach stuff, if you look at it, is actually magazine. And the magazine was still viewed as like the real realm of real advertising. And David Ogilvy, it was like magazine. That was kind of like long copy. Like that's, you read Ogilvy on advertising, as you read through it, you realize, oh my God, this entire book is about print advertising. <laughs> and, uh, and so TV was still kind of on the edge and they couldn't really measure it. They couldn't, there wasn't a coupon. You couldn't see direct response. It was just what is this TV thing? They don't really know how to do it well. And a lot of times when we invent a new medium, we tend to just, you know, take the one that had happened previously and just apply it. So the very first radio shows uh, were all plays. Like, you know, we just took what we were doing on stage and we just put it on the radio. And it was like, all right. But, you know, it wasn't the true potential of the medium. Uh, the very first TV ads... Uh, what they were is they pointed a camera at people reading radio ads. <laughs> so, and I, I'm going to keep going with this analogy, but like it's just each time we we tended to find the next thing by the last thing. And so, um, so what I love about the YNR story though is that there was the advertising group doing like real advertising, and then there's on a different floor, like in the corner. There was like a bunch of crazy long haired kids who were like smoking pot and they were like the TV group and they were trying to figure this thing out. Also, so fast forward and, uh, and well, let's fast forward to, so I worked for a stint at uh, gray advertising, uh, in Toronto and we'll fast forward to that. So what was interesting about gray advertising is that, you know, I was, um, 
um, head of the interactive team. And it was interesting to me when I got there because there was the advertising group and the advertising group included, you know, um, magazine and billboard and newspaper and um, radio and, and television. That was all part of that. And then our group, which was essentially the web team, uh, was on a different floor, same building, but different floor, had our own receptionist, and, and we were basically a bunch of crazy kids smoking pot and trying to figure out this interactive stuff, which no one had really quite figured out at this point in time. And uh, we were just, at, you know, just kind of in that age where, you know, the banner ads had become click-throughs. Because if you remember the early banner ads, you couldn't even click on them. They were essentially magazine ads put on the web, right? And which is, again, it's like that's how we use the last medium, so let's use this medium that way. And so, um, and I just thought that was so funny because it was like advertising was here and that was kind of where it all happened. And then they would kind of loop the interactive folks in near the end, kind of like, I don't know what these guys are thinking, but maybe they'll come up with something. Um, John Clinton, who was my CEO there, and to his credit, he did, uh, he did understand that the, the, he thought that Gray ultimately would win more often if it had a better interactive pitch, but we never, we never really got there and I didn't stay long enough to, to figure it out. So, um, so that's the, that's the great story. Now keep going. Well, then we went to, then I go to Microsoft and Microsoft, um, I created a social team and like literally created a social team and, um, very interesting time. And, um, and you know, if you think about how we were thinking about advertising at the time, by the, by this point in time, this is 2011, 2012, you know, there was the advertising team, which was, you know, TV and, and radio and, and, you know, magazine and newspaper and billboard and, you know, and, and, you know, web, like that was included, right? That was obvious, you know? And then, um, there was this social team, which was not just in a different floor. Like I wasn't allowed, and this is still true today, by the way, I wasn't allowed to put our social team in a Microsoft facility. So we had to rent lease office space completely independently and uh and then put the social team there part of the reason is that to do it well that density had to be high enough for the team to be able to interact on what was happening and that density was higher than microsoft standard and so they wouldn't allow us to stay in a campus building uh, but i always thought it was hilarious because there's again a bunch of crazy kids Smoking dope, now legal, by the way, smoking dope, trying to figure stuff out, and you know, we'll see where this goes. Now, we've, we've made a lot of progress, and then you're sort of seeing social as being an integrated part of everything that's being done uh, in the web. And uh, what's the new thing? I think mobile. I think mobile is the thing with the crazy kids smoking dope in the corner, but I always love it. And I always think, you know, there's always going to be a new thing. There's always going to be a new thing out there that people don't really know what to do with, and they, they give it to the kids and see what they'll, see what they'll do with it and see how they figure it out. So... That's my story for today. Uh, kind of, uh, thanks for indulging me. I just wanted to talk about the evolution of channels. I'm going to leave you with a thought. When I first started um, working on the web, so I basically downloaded the NCSA Mosaic browser in February of 94. It was the week my oldest daughter was born. And I immediately said, oh, my God, this is it. Like, I could see it. Like, I'd been waiting for this, right? I think that this was it. And I quit my job at P&G the end of that week. Brand new baby. 
and uh, <laughs> no job. And I didn't have anything else to go to. I just quit my job to become a web entrepreneur. And uh, it was, what, was interesting about, what was interesting about that is the, the way that people talked about it as a fad and it wasn't going to go anywhere and, you know, it's just, a, it's, you know, it's going to be short-lived. You know, I, I got a lot of satisfaction out of knowing that people had said that about radio and people had said that about television. And this is the advantage of reading history. I know people don't like to read history and advertising and marketing for some reason, but if you read a lot of advertising and marketing history and read old magazines and stuff, you know, you'll see people talk about stuff in a way that sounds very familiar, but it's different because it's applied to today. And you can start to sort of see what the end of the story would be like. And the more that people clamored against the web and the more people criticized it, the more I was like, this is going to be something. Same thing in social. The more people poo-pooed it and sort of like dismissed it and wrote it off, the more excited I got. Okay, this is really going to be something. So whenever you find something that people are just like, that's never going to work, double-click on that one. That might be something special. For the CXM experience, I'm Brad Kahn, and I'll talk to you next time.